1: All right, everybody, here we are again. This week, uh, Dr. Lowry is out. He's gallivanting around the country. So, I got myself, Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild. I also uh, run USSF, amongst other things.
2: This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I run my own business, Extreme Human Performance LLC, Teach for Globe University, helping with books and need to perform and mindset stuff and all sorts of things.
3: I'm uh, Gina Taconi-Moore. I'm the owner and founder of CrossFit Lowell uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts, and the treatment room uh, also inside of CrossFit Lowell, which is a uh, soft tissue uh, manual therapy treatment facility.
2: Very cool. And that'll be part of our topic of the day here as we get into it on uh, soft tissue work for lifters and just generally your thoughts and opinions about that, how they should use it, when it's useful, what to look for, things of that nature, which I yeah. think would be really useful since, you know, we all know a whole bunch of lifters and a lot of them tend to be banged up a good portion of the time too, so
1: <laughs> yep.
2: if Lonnie was here, he would right. complain about his elbow, but uh, we can give him a bad time, <laughs> he's not even here to defend himself. Yeah, <laughs> so.
1: Um. Yeah, we'll get into to Gina's story, but I know we had a couple pieces of news real quick. I just had one I wanted to mention. Um, we were talking about before the show. Um,
0: Strength and Muscle Sport
1: News. This uh, Susan Salazar came out and she broke the 126 pound record with a in powerlifting. Um, this is a raw record. She uh, squatted 424. Bench 237 and deadlifted 468 at 126 pounds in the 128 pound class. So wow! Can
2: you said that? Yeah. Uh, yes. Holy crap! <laughs> like
1: the world's biggest pussy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of my one of my clients wrote me because she's about she's in the same weight class and about the same height, five foot nothing. Which oh, I want to do that, and then it's like, okay, well, <laughs> we got work to do. You no, know. but yeah, that's a, amazing numbers. I mean, you're talking. You're approaching four times body weight yeah. on deadlift yeah. at that point. Yeah, so,
3: it's
1: wild. Yeah, Oof. it's pretty pretty dramatic numbers. So, yeah. Mike, you got something for us?
2: Yeah, there's only one thing. I've got a, a short one here. This is um, uh, talking about uh, benefits demonstrated in mice and yeast piloted in humans, talking about uh, fasting. And it's just a short, interesting article that says a diet that mimics fasting allows to slow aging. Uh, again, they're doing a pilot study now in humans. <clears throat> um, uh, I'll just read just a quick part of it here. It says the the mouse tests were part of a three-tiered study on periodic fasting effects. So they initially tested it on yeast, mice, and then humans. And again, this was published in uh, Cell Metabolism of this year, June 18th. And the short version is that what was interesting is that they wanted to test it on <clears throat> basic organisms, and then kind of obviously scale up the food chain, so to speak. And it appears to be pretty beneficial in terms of protection against longevity. Uh, one of the things they had here is that the the diet slash the individual's caloric intake by 34 to 35 percent. Um, they use a specific combination of protein, carbs, and fats. Um, also decrease the amount of hormone IGF-1, which for lifters is probably kind of a A double-edged sword. Um, There's some data to show that if IGF-1 levels are higher, there's a higher risk of cancer. Um, But for lifters, obviously, we know that that IGF-1 can also help with recovery and things of that nature too. So again, like most things in physiology, you want sort of the the happy medium, probably want enough to have everything go well, recovery be good, but you probably don't want that to be sky high from a longevity standpoint. Um, So the takeaway is that I don't agree with all the little things they had in the article. One of the big complaints they said is that it was hard for people, theorized, to stay in a fasting condition for longer periods of time. Um, Again, in my experience, I've had people do 19 to 24 hours pretty easily, um, but I only have them do it once a week or even once every three weeks. And, again, that's something that they they work up to. Um, And last thing is when I was at the Experimental Biology Conference in Boston, There was a really cool talk on intermittent fasting, and it was a literature search they had done, kind of presenting like a meta-analysis or a combination of a bunch of studies. And as we got into it, I was was talking to Dr. Josh Cotter, who was there also, and we had talked about this on an old Iron Radio episode. And they had searched for the term intermittent fasting, and what they found was they presented more of, okay, here's a higher calorie day, here's a lower calorie day. There wasn't really much... Research on fasting in terms of not taking anything in for a set period of time So I think it'll be an interesting area in research and there's I know a whole bunch of studies on that way There's some stuff on alternate day fasting um, But yeah, it's something to keep your eye out for and there'll probably be a lot more talk about it coming up, too
1: I saw another interesting one for some reason what you just talked about brought it up And I was gonna mention it to you and Lonnie so I might as well mention it now a study. I saw it's called, uh, does grandparents diet affect weight risk in, you know, subsequent generations? Oh, yeah. And basically they took control groups of rats and fed a control group, a high fat diet consisting of 45% fat. Yep. And then another, another one, 10%. And then they bred two generations and then looked at it. And like two generations later, the, the leptin was through the roof. Mm-hmm. And, uh lower testosterone levels and LH and everything else. That was pretty interesting. I mean, does that translate into humans? I don't know. But because you got to think, I mean, you're talking about a species of animal that, like, lives off of, you know, they're out nibbling on creatures out in nature, you know, <laughs> compared to they're not like us where we're like, you know, hey, cow, eat it, Yeah. you know, type. So, you know, one would think that potentially we'd have a higher fat diet anyways, Um, than a mouse, but you you don't know, but I mean, it's interesting to see that at least in in another species that you know, diet affects even two generations later. So yeah, um, there's
2: um, If I remember right, there's uh, I think it was the 1836 famine that they had studied um, looking at that in terms of human population and what they found was that for a couple generations that um, it does kind of get uh, skewed pretty dramatically. Um, And again, that's through what they call epigenetic changes, so that we used to think that our DNA in essence is sort of static, which it is, Mm -hmm. um, but there's an epigenome that runs on top of it that allows for much more rapid changes. And the thing to me that's always mind-blowing, and there's some very cool rat studies on this too, is that those epigenetic changes due to environments or stressors or whatever, can actually, some of them, can actually be then passed down via a genetic change. Meaning that in this study, right, you talked about the mice, you do something weird to them with their diet, that type of thing, and then you watch the next generation of their offspring, sometimes one, two, three generations, and mm-hmm. a lot of times that will show up in necessarily their genetics. Hmm. Um, to me, that part is just fascinating. So it's yeah. one thing that you have a change, you know, for that person or organism at that time, Mm -hmm. but then that can actually be passed down to their kids and their, you know, their kids, Um, which really makes your head spin about, you know, what did your
1: parents and grandparents
2: and their grandparents eat and do and all that kind of stuff.
1: Because, I mean, it goes beyond the whole, like, I don't know, if you see a family the whole family that's obese, you know, it's just, it's more than just habitual that they're passing on. You know, of course you're passing on, on habits as a parent, but you know, potentially you could be passing on genome as well. So, um, that's kind of crazy, but yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Gina? Um,
3: yeah, I mean the, you talk about the, the salmon thing, um, and clearly at that point in time, and you know, I'm, I'm going to, Hop over the the pond here into you know England and and Ireland and so on, but yeah. you know you had you had massive groups of families who were um, eating almost strictly carbohydrate based diets, mm-hmm. and it really was you know only the predominant breadwinner in the family, um, and sometimes it was you know relatively large families who was getting access to a piece of bacon a couple of times a week or something like that. So you had diets that were not built to sustain significant work. And as a result, you know, just in terms of population change as well, um, I think that, you know, and of course you had like the, the cholera epidem- epidemics and so on going on there too at that point in time. But, you know, something like between uh, 1835 and 18, when was the last really bad one? 54, I want to say, 65% of deaths were children under five. Um, yeah, so it was, you know, um, and, and that clearly had a lot to do with the, you know, conditions and so on, but, um, certainly also with nutrition. I mean, if, if, mm-hmm. if you were eating gruel for lack of a, a better term, um, and, you know, occasionally like an oat cake here and there, um, and if you were lucky, a, a joint of meat, um, you know, every once in a while, that's not sustainable in terms of creating a nice solid platform on which to be healthy. So,
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you would expect that those next generations are going to have issues related to those super high amounts of stress then too. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Interesting. So I guess we can get into Gina's background. That's kind of where we start usually with new guests. All right. Is, uh, you know, kind of who you are, where you came from, how you got into all this. Cool.
3: Um, so I was a sprinter for many years. And, uh, short distance, I did 100, 200. And then sort of whatever event they tossed me into, although I really loved Javelin. and that was one of my favorite sort of side projects. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, mm. but at any rate, being a sprinter, um, I was constantly up on my toes and, um, even on the, um, the longer distance days, I definitely translated that into, you know, just like ball of my foot and forward kind of toe running. Um, and so as a result, when I started CrossFit, um, my shin splints that I'd been grappling with for quite a long time came back and reared their heads again. And uh, so I was like, all right, well, I'll continue to do this, but I'll do Helen on a boat or I'll do Murph on a <laughs> boat or whatever. So I was subbing in. um Slightly longer distance rowing with, uh, for, for the running. And as anyone who has ever tried to do Helen on a boat or Murph on a boat can oh, attest, geez. it's a pain in the ass. I mean, your, your grip strength goes pretty much immediately. And then, you know, um, in both of those particular workouts, you've got, um, something to hold on to, either a kettlebell or a pull up bar or both. And so it's just, it was just not functional at all. So, um, my, Trainer suggested that I go see someone, um, and you know, he was like, "Yeah, he does ART." At that point in time, I had no idea what it was. ART is Active Release Techniques, and uh, so he's like, "Yep, he's great. It's black magic. You're gonna love it." Um, <laughs> and uh, and I had gotten into CrossFit because somehow I got it in my head that I wanted to run a tough mutter. Um, mm. I can't tell you why <laughs> that I, I wanted to do that at this point, but. Um, Prior to that, I had been a pretty active yoga practitioner, and uh, I was like, you know, this is not going to cut it for all the upper body work I'm going to have to do. So, uh, so that was sort of what led me to CrossFit. And again, CrossFit sort of reawakened this old injury. Um, so I got myself booked into an appointment with this uh, gentleman up in Danvers, and uh, three sessions later, I was pain-free. Um, after, like I said, years and years of this. And I was like, whoa, this stuff is super cool. So I figured out that the fastest route for me to be able to do that was to get a license in massage therapy, um, which is what I did. So I went to the massage school in Acton and went through their kick-ass curriculum. Um, And then in the meantime, while I was doing that, I got certified in active release techniques for spine lower extremity and upper extremity. So I'm now full body certified. And, uh, in that time period, I also started, uh, sort of following Tom Myers and, um, you know, taking his courses and coincidentally, that's how, uh, Mike and I met was at a dissection lab out in, uh, Arizona, which was outstanding. And uh so just, you know, started delving more into some of the other soft tissue modalities and, and so on. And uh and now it's become uh something of an obsession, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. Um but uh but yeah, so following all of that in the meantime I um I opened my own gym in 2012 and um shortly thereafter had my license in massage therapy and um again my full body certs. And uh, so then I started the treatment room, which um, sort of, you know, accepts people in all walks of life. So it's not just my athletes at CrossFit Lowell or CrossFit athletes in general, but, um, you know, the, the general population as well. And um, I did a significant amount of work, actually, um, through American Corporate Health as a uh, an on-site soft tissue provider for a company out in Devon that does uh, aerospace engineering. Mm. Um, and that was really interesting because what I was finding in that population is that, you know, those tissues were in many ways m- much further behind the tissues of the athletes that I was working on who were, you know, sort of self-reportedly abusing themselves every day. But, um, you know, with, uh, with the folks who were, in the engineering department and the human resources department and even the guys who are, you know, and gals who are on the shop floor, um, you know, it's, it's injury at zero miles an hour kind of thing. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, because they're, they're constantly sitting at their computers and in this head forward posture and, um, you know, just kind of the, the spine is in flexion all day long and, um, and that's no good either. And so I would go to work on those people whose chief complaints tended to be like, Oh, I hold my tension in my shoulders or my wrist Mm -hmm. hurts or whatever. And man, the tissue was like beef jerky. It was just really, really ugly. Um, and so what I started telling people there, um, and also at the, at the treatment room and at the gym is that, you know, if you put your hands on a a point of tissue and it feels like anything other than a freshly set bowl of jello, it really needs some attention, um, because good, healthy, oxygenated tissue really needs to feel spongy, um, you know, like it kind of bounces back at you, um, and, and not like you're trying to, you know, kind of pump blood into a sequoia, you know, so, um, (laughs) that's, that's no good, so, but, uh, but yeah, so, and since then, um, I've done some work with the, um, NPGL athletes, the Boston Iron, and also worked the uh, the Northeast Regionals, or the I guess this past year it was the Super East Regionals um, <laughs> at uh, for the CrossFit Games. So, yeah. so it's been fun. It's been it's been quite a uh, quite a trip the last few years. So,
2: no, that's very cool. It's it's very interesting, and for people that are kind of new to massage therapy or even thinking about adding that to what they do. Can you talk just a little bit about what is involved in getting, uh, like, an LMT, so licensed massage therapist? I know it differs per state, and like in Minnesota, it's different even per county. Yeah. So Minnesota is one of those weird states where, <coughs> it's, excuse me, it's technically not, quote unquote, licensed, although it's highly recommended. Mhm. So even in my area, I can technically legally do hands-on therapy. Yeah. If I go to a different state, it's completely different too. So I right. just wanted to talk sure. a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. It really does vary quite a bit. So um, if you're interested in it, you'll really need to just sign on to your state's website and, uh, and they'll typically have a licensing bureau there um, and, you know, just kind of pop over to the massage therapy section. But speaking to Massachusetts anyway, um, the state requirement as of 2013, I think was 650 hours in a credentialed um, massage therapy program. Our program at the massage school was uh, above and beyond that. We did 800 hours, um, which included 200 hours of hands-on clinical. So um, in theory, you could have had 200 different bodies passing under your hands in that time, which obviously is really important in terms of, you know, sort of getting your bearings and so on and so forth. But but at any rate, yeah, so it's it's a it's a school requirement. Um and then it's um there's a there's a national board that you can sit for as well. Um it's just a, a test that you would, you know, go to a center for and, and so on, and then you've got the credential of being a nationally board certified uh massage therapist and body worker. So but yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the catch twenty two is that you know, with again, with trainers in Massachusetts, um you can't put hands on. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge no, no here. So, uh, and I think, you know, in like New York state, that's, that's another one. And their requirements are even more stringent. I Hmm. think that they require like a thousand hours of, of school. Yeah. Um, before you can get your license. So, and then again, the, the credentialing requirements are different, um, state to state. There are some that have, um, a state licensure exam. Massachusetts does not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there are places that do. And like you said, there are places that, you know, you don't actually need to be licensed in order to to practice soft tissue. So, but yeah, so I would just suggest, like I said, and also if you're looking for a professional, um, you should be able to find them and their license number again on the, uh, you know, your, your state's website. So.
1: Personally, I mean, I don't find it bad that, Like many states require that there is licensure because I've I've been to a lot of facilities and I've seen (laughs) like what is I've seen so much crap done by people that shouldn't be doing it and it's like we have to get a license to drive a car. Yep. You know before you start cranking on this person's extremity you might want to watch something more than a YouTube video. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm an expert now, Phil. Yeah, right. (laughs) I watch the YouTube video while staying at a Holiday (laughs) Inn. Yeah. I'm totally there.
3: That's sort of been my concern, too. Like, there's a – and I I feel like I'm maybe going to upset some people with this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I feel like it needs Uh, to be said. There's been a recent trend in um, self-treatment. Um, and you know, I, let me just lay the foundation work here. I am all for learning how to take care of your own tissue problems and so on and so forth. But you know, again, as, as someone who knows where endangerment sites are and neurovascular bundles and things like that, um, when I see people recommending that home athletes jam a lacrosse ball into the riverbed of the brachial plexus right above the clavicle, and then weigh it down with a kettlebell and a yoga strap and hang from a bar. Oh I get God, really I anxious about that. Yeah. <laughs> I get really, really anxious about that. And, um, you know, there was another one that I saw recently where um, someone had, like, a one of those, like, Super Bowl things that was taped around the end of a PVC pipe. And it was – the recommendation was, like, yep, just get right into your subscap. And, again, oh, I mean – where like I'm not sure that I would be able to effectively treat with that sort of tool you know and uh and again I'm I'm trained through multiple modalities to access the subscapular muscle but um again the axle of the armpit is a huge endangerment site and uh because again you've got the brachial plexus in there and if you press on it wrong you know you're you're just asking for trouble so um like I said I I feel like Part of this is coming from the fact that CrossFitters and lifters tend to be, um, a little on the intense side and they're looking for the next biggest, most awesome thing to like really fix that shoulder problem or really fix that hip issue or, you know, um, get those hammies loosened up or whatever. Um, but just because your workout is, is intense and, you know, you want to feel that intensity doesn't mean that your soft tissue work also has Mm -hmm. to be extreme. Um, in fact, it shouldn't be extreme. And, you know, that's, that's sort of the other, uh, bugaboo is that, you know, um, I have a, I have a couple of folks who come in, um, who, you know, if, if they're not like writhing in pain at some point during the treatment, they're like, well, (laughs) you didn't even do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, and that's, you know, that to me is a problem. I think that that is one of the excuse me for using this word, but one of the paradigms that needs to be shifted. Um, mm-hmm. That it, well, it's uh you know, it, it should be, the focus should be on effectiveness, not on uh, the creation of pain during treatment, either with, yes. you know, like self care or going mm-hmm. to see a professional.
1: Well, and I think at a point too, it comes down to, you know, scope of practice with gym owners. Yep. You know, it's like, you're not a, ter- a therapist and it's okay to refer right. out, you know, yeah, absolutely. you know, your job is to make people stronger yeah. at that point or better. And it's okay that you refer out to make somebody, to somebody to fix that. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't get that. They think they need to be this all encompassing, you know, body management person. Right. It's like, it, it's okay to, to tell your clients that, look, I don't know everything, but they know this. Yeah, part. You know? exactly. And you actually build relationships then. Like, we have, I have a good soft tissue person here in this area that I refer to people to, and of course, you know, it comes back right. to me. Yeah. You know? right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. yeah. And that's my,
2: <clears throat> that's my biggest pet peeve, too, is people, one, like you mentioned, doing soft tissue work on themselves mm-hmm. with the goal of how much pain can I create because right. I must be doing something better then, um, yeah. which I mean, I wrote an article like in 2007 called Get Off the Foam Roller about, you know, ooh, foam rollers, and everyone was just trying to find the next level of pain creation, right? right? Oh, PVC pipe and lacrosse balls and all this stuff. And you add in the fact, as you mentioned, that most of the people doing this don't know what they're doing, right? They haven't even taken a basic anatomy and physiology class just to start, Right. you know, and they're not having a, a way to measure, was it better or not? They were just trying to figure out ways of inflicting more pain on themselves.
3: Exactly. And I'm
2: like that seems wrong on so many <laughs> so oh, <absolutely>. many levels. <laughs> absolutely.
3: Well, I mean, even in you know, and in, in, in my gym where um, all of the coaches are, are pretty savvy when it comes to anatomical stuff, um, you know, it, it still happens. Like we'll have a new person come in. And you'll watch them walk over to the wall with a lacrosse ball and then just throw themselves into oh, it. Um, and so one of us will sort of, you know, trot over there and say, okay. So, and the analogy that we use is always with the, the grilled cheese sandwich. So if you were trying, if you had a grilled cheese sandwich in between both palms of your hands and you were trying to separate it, the last thing that you would do would be to drive a nail straight through the center of the grilled cheese sandwich. And that's effectively what you're doing when you take a lacrosse ball and you find uh, an adhesion or a knot um, and you just kind of, you know, sit there and and wail on it. Um, Instead, the way that you would separate it is to kind of create, you know, little circles and pancake the the two pieces of bread and cheese apart from each other until they were, you know, they were finally able to to come apart. Um, And that's what people should be doing with their, you know, uh, trigger point pros and their Gemini's and you know um, all of these other little tools that are coming out and stuff now um, it really it's you know they, they shouldn't be stuck on um, you know a, a site of innovation or uh, an adhesion or anything like that they should really be used dynamically rather than statically
1: we better take a break because we're like quickly shifting into the topic of the day. Oh, yeah. And uh, so <laughs> we'll, we'll just take a short stop right here and then, then pick it back up.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the. Protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase/slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99 95 uh cover price so that's pretty fantastic 69 dollars, i think that's gonna drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people and you can even rent it uh lower down the page they have 180 day rentals and one year rentals so you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information so thanks
2: Hey, this is Iron Radio here with uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson and Phil Stevens. Uh, Lonnie is out gallivanting around the country today. And today we've got a special guest, uh, Gina, and we're talking all about soft tissue work for lifters and things you should avoid and also how to find a good soft tissue worker in your area. So thank you very much for being with us today, Gina. My pleasure. Yeah. And so we were talking about... um, Sort of effective techniques and what to do and one thing that really, because I met you at the cadaver course in Arizona,
4: mm-hmm. so for
2: people are listening, what the hell was that? <laughs> um, it's really cool and I've done a fair amount of cadaver work in the past, I actually even taught anatomy and physiology a couple of times, um, but all the work I did was actually on <clears throat> embalmed tissue. So for people don't know, like formaldehyde is what's used for embalming. And in essence, it's just a protein fixative. So all the proteins that are in your body, muscle connective tissue, that type of thing. And in essence, just sort of stops them in space so that the tissue will keep longer, the shape will stay and that type of thing. So there are some, you know, good benefits to it. Uh, Especially a lot of colleges will use, you know, cadavers over and over for several months actually or, or longer than that. Mm -hmm. Um, In this course, which was taught through Anatomy Trains, through Thomas Myers, and the Dissector was Todd Garcia, was in Arizona, and they actually had fresh tissue. So the bodies were only frozen once, and then the tissue has never really been fixed. And when I first signed up for it, I thought, well, you know, it'll be kind of a little bit of a different view. And by the end of the course, it was pretty crazy how different it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two big things that jumped out at me were that it's, you cut the tissue, it bleeds. Um, You can see a lot of the fascia, the connective tissue, just really profoundly. Where on fixed tissue, it all tends to get kind of merged together. And then also you can see where you actually have adhesions and not, because you don't have something that's artificially put in there in essence to almost sort of create adhesions itself. Um, So studying more of the function of the tissue, I thought was uh, very fascinating, which gets back to my point and my question is that so a lot of people that use, say, a foam roller on like their you know IT band. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were talking about is that you want to probably create more shear stress than you want to create sort of a normal force or a pinpoint force. Right. right. So if I'm flopping around on the floor like a dead fish on a foam roller, <laughs> I'm in essence just Squishing the IT band and the TFL and all that stuff together. Right. And what I really want them to do is I want all the muscles and that sort of thing to kind of operate yeah. the way they should and sort of mm-hmm. slide over each other. Right. Do You want to talk a little bit about that and what your thoughts are on that?
3: Yeah. So um, let's let's stay on the IT band because that's always one of those things that it's you know be a
2: big one all the time.
3: Huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's constantly the constant complaint is oh my IT band is super yep. tight. Uh, yeah, of course, yeah, it is. It's tight. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's done that way. Do not loosen that thing. Yeah. You're going to have a bad time if you get that to loosen up.
4: So, oh, yeah. Um,
3: but yeah, in terms, what people are really saying um, when they say that their IT band is tight is that one of the compartments in their upper leg is tight, um, and because of the position of the IT band, which is you know definitely obviously on the lateral aspect of the thigh. Um, but, I mean, it really does kind of, it's, its you know, lying right on top of uh, vastus lateralis, which is, you know, sort of that teardrop-shaped muscle um, that's, that's on the outside of your, of your front of your leg. Um, but it also has some tie-ins, definitely, with uh, the bicep in the back, the hamstring. Um, so if you're trying to treat IT band, first off, get off the damn IT band itself. A, <laughs> it's going to hurt. Um, and again, I know you know we talked about like producing pain and how that feels good for people, but um, trust me when I say that if you if you are just foam rolling your IT band, you are not doing much of anything. Um, if you really want to get some some um, glide and uh and slide back into that, what you need to do is work TFL, which is the tensor fascia latte. So that is the structure that um actually is responsible for tensing the fascia of that um anterior compartment and the IT band um and that can be found right at the right at the top of your hip it's just that little squishy bit that's that's in there um if you were to put your hand sort of on the front of your hip um and and feel around the uh the ASIS um so kind of and sort English. of the top in of your English pelvis, that is your hip the yeah. right side. Is that correct <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: yep you got <laughs> it translate. um And, uh, yeah, Mike, if you could serve as translator, that would be (laughs) be helpful. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so you, you can work into that squishy bit with, um, with a lacrosse ball, um, against the wall. I would say that if you stand against the wall, that is going to give you much more control than if you lay down on the floor, because then you've got your entire body weight compressing this, this poor little muscle. Um, and you don't need it. You know, it's just use your lacrosse ball efficiently, not violently, I guess. Um, so, so that would be where I would start with that. Um, and then I would sort of head down to the knee, to the lateral aspect of the knee. Um, and you can do a lot with just moving the skin. Um, because Mike, as I'm, I'm sure that you also noticed, um, in the dissection lab, the skin is extremely restrictive. Um, and again, it's, designed to be, it's designed to hold everything in. Um, but the fascial adhesions that occur between, um, you know, either the fascia profundus that sort of wraps everything up like Saran wrap, um, or the muscles themselves can create some real, uh, you know, like Velcro stuff going on. Um, and then you're missing out on that glide. So if you can loosen up the skin, um, that is sort of contacting, you can feel like the bony protrusions and stuff, Um, just kind of grab on and, and move, make circles, um, go up and down, go left to right. Um, you're not gonna, you're not gonna hurt it if you're just using the, the pads of your three fingers, um, to just sort of move that guy around a little bit. Um, so that would be, that would be step two. And then the final thing would be if you really are desperate to use your foam roller, that's where you can do it is on vastus lateralis. So, um, if you're looking down at your thigh and you divide it into thirds, it's the lateral-most third. Go um, so towards the, the outside. Yeah, the outside, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that you can get on the, the foam roller and sort of roll from your knee up to your hip. Um, and then one of my, uh, one of my favorite hamstring um, openers, I guess, is also a favorite of uh, Dmitry Klokov, which is using a, a matador. Um, and you just kind of, you know, plug There's it in door. No, it's the a yeah, dip station. Yeah. Dip station. Oh, dip um, station. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so if you hop up onto a dip station, either, you know, on your GHD, um, or like if you've got one that plugs into, uh, to the rig or something, you can just kind of like, you know, go from your sit bone all the way down to your knee, um, sliding back and forth over that, you know, the metal handle or whatever, and uh, and really kind of move some some tissue around there. So, so um, you're
2: actually using that as the thing that you're sort of moving against, is that correct? Exactly. Gotcha.
3: Yep. Um, so that's sort of a, an easy four-part um, IT band release. Um, but again, you really, when you're doing this, you want to stay off of um, that connective tissue as much as possible, because once again, I'll refer back to the dissection lab. Um, I was astonished at how unwilling that was to relax even in non-living tissue.
4: Uh,
3: So if if it doesn't relax when you're dead, it's not going anywhere when you're Mm. still alive.
2: Yeah, and that's the part that was amazing to me how much, and again, we don't know the history of the cadavers we've worked on or or whatever, but how much the IT band was literally just plastered to the muscle below it yeah. And then Thomas Myers came over and I was asking him about IT band and all this kind of stuff. And and he said, well, you know, take your forceps and, you know, basically fancy little pliers, right?
4: Yeah. And
2: hold each side and try to tear it. i like Rank it on this thing, nothing happens. And he's like, well, now try to make a small incision, sort of 90 degrees to it, right? So if I'm going to rip a rag or something like that, I'm going to cut and make a little um, start and then it's just going to, you know, fall apart, right? Sure. So I figured, okay, if I you know cut it and then pull on it, it's probably going to rip. So I you know make a cut about you know half an inch down, pulling on it, and nothing happened.
4: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: even then, I'm I'm trying to rip this tissue, which at this point is not even living, right. and it's not going anywhere. I mean, it's an incredibly strong too. Yeah,
3: exactly. So hopefully that drives home and illustrates the point for people that again, this is not a structure that. You know, like oh, I'm totally gonna roll on this thing for two minutes aside and yeah. just release.
1: Well, and not only that. I mean, I think the IT band has become like the biggest fallacy in tissue. Where it's like everybody, oh, yeah. like you guys said at the beginning, it's like, oh, my IT band's tight. Well, good. good. <laughs> you know, I'm glad. You'd be in, you'd have problems if it was. Yeah, wasn't. for sure. Um, and people just uh, it's it's been sunk home somehow that it needs to be loosened up, and it's like no, that's not a good right. thing. And you know, that, that thing serves a purpose. Yep, it, you know, totally. It's keeping you together. So, um, And people just don't get that. Yeah. Um, the- and you had mentioned the skin,
2: which I I mean, leaving the, the course there, one thing that just blew my mind and sort of I'm really big on even with my students of creating sort of mental models. And I think mm-hmm. even as lifters, you know, I've told people just go buy Grey's Anatomy, right? It's yeah pretty good you can buy it used for probably almost free at this yep. point point. and mean, go to even wikipedia as much as i hate work i mean wikipedia but their anatomy stuff on there for pictures which are usually pulled out of Gray's anatomy are pretty good
4: yes um yep.
2: and with the skin that just blew me away so on our cadaver we did range of motion testing initially since mm-hmm. they're not involved you can see you know what joint moves well what joint doesn't write everything down on the board her right knee would only bend or flex, about like 10 degrees, and it, it mm-hmm. felt like you hit a hard resistance. So I'm figuring, you know, there's an older lady, she's got some knee problems, there's probably, God knows, there's rocks in her knee, or who knows what's yeah, going sure. on. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm working on that side, and the the first thing we do, although that sounds a little gross, is you remove all the skin. And so peel away the skin on, you know, the upper leg, lower leg, and... I'm like, well, you know, just to be a good little scientist, I'll, you know, retest the leg again. I'll add it to my notes. So I retest the knee to bend again. I'm like, son of a bitch. It goes like 90 degrees.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm like, oh, my God, I screwed something up. I cut something <laughs> that wasn't supposed to cut. So I called the uh, Todd Garcia, the dissector over who's you know, done this hundreds of times. I said, hey, you know, does this look all right? Did I hit anything? He's like, no, it looks good. Mm-hmm. I said, but the knee did not really bend much before now, and now it bends like 90 degrees. He goes, yeah, that happens a lot, and he wanders off.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Like, that happens a lot? (laughs) uh,
2: I was asking Thomas Myers about it, and back to your comment about working on the skin,
4: Mm -hmm.
2: and he was saying that, you know, they believe that there's a lot of adhesions that build up between, in essence, the skin and the next layer down, the fascia, the muscle, that type of thing. Yep. And... The more I kept thinking about it, i like, oh. Because if you cut a piece of skin, like you said, it's not very flexible. I mean, there's not a lot of give to it. It's very, very tough stuff. Right. And so, in essence, the new mental model I walked away with is that our bodies, in essence, are moving in this sort of, lack of a better word, non-stretchy kind of sack of skin. Mm-hmm. And then if you've got these adhesions between the underlying layer and the skin, that the skin isn't really going to flex or move a lot. And so I've wondered often and get your thoughts on this too, how often people have movement issues that may not be the fascia, may not necessarily be the muscle. If we just ignore the nervous system for now, just to keep it simple,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: just simply between the skin and the next layer down. And what are your thoughts on that?
3: Oh yeah. Big time. Um, And you know, the, uh, the dissection lab that you and I met at was my second one, and there yeah. were different things that I wanted to see in that one uh, as opposed to the first one. The skin, um, and again, the presence of adhesions beneath the skin being one of the big ones. So, um, so yeah, so part of my dissection was trying to kind of, you know, separate out the, the layers of the skin fairly carefully and just sort of taking a peek um, to see what was underneath. And, um, you know, it, it really is like when you get down in between, um, you know, the, the, the dermis and the fascia profunda, so the very last layer of the skin and the saran wrap around all of the muscles, um, it is like cobwebs. I mean, it really looks yeah. exactly like cobwebs. Um, and some of it you can move. I mean, you can literally go in with a pinky finger and just sweep and it'll yep. come apart. Um, others... Not so much. Others were, you know, um, you could see the adhesion sort of being pulled in between, uh, the muscle underneath and, and the skin itself. And, uh, and, you know, even, even going at it with an instrument was, um, was difficult. So, um, one of the things that, that I took away from that experience and then subsequently when we were sort of working in our groups, um, with some techniques and treatments following the the lab itself um, was the the skin rolling thing mm-hmm. um, so skin rolling is is this is this is another good one that um, you can do on yourself or with a with a buddy um, but basically the skin rolling is just sort of taking um, the skin you know with you so just a little take a little pinch kind of thing and it's okay if you if you grab um a little bit of adipose that's fine because again all of this fat sorry all of this stuff is going to be um, <laughs> is going to be stuck together um but i would you know start someplace where it's kind of easy to to grab a little bit of skin so maybe like um you know going back to the knee if you want to go to the inside of the front of the knee um, to again, that, you know, the teardroppy muscle on the, uh, the inside of the leg, you can kind of pinch there. And then if you can keep that much skin in your hands in between your thumb and the first couple of fingers and just roll up the leg, um, one, it's extremely effective. And two, for the pain seekers, it is a profound experience. Trust me on that one. Yeah.
2: Certain areas of my quads, I still can't do that at all. I'm just like, holy crap. Yep. Yep.
3: It's, um, it's a, it's a, like I said, very effective, but a brutal little technique. Um, but I will, I will say that it is, it is really impressive in the results that it yields in terms of range of motion. Um, and, uh, one of the areas that I really like to do that on, and it's, it's tough because obviously there's not a lot of like Loose skin just hanging out around the ankles. But, um, if you can get into the skin on the ankles, um, that is so, so great for increasing, uh, dorsiflexion or mm-hmm. being able to bring your knee further over your toes. Um, like, for example, in the bottom position of a squat. So, um, and then if you can't accomplish that again at the, at the ankle level, cause it is, it is tough and it gets pinchy and you're like, who is this girl? She's terrible. Why is she (laughs) recommending that I do this? Um, You can get a a friend to sort of work on the back of the ankle. Um, So what you would do is set yourself up um, standing facing a wall um, with one foot forward and the foot that you want to work on backwards and make sure you kind of square that foot up, um, you know, with the wall so that your toes are pointing straight ahead um, and at that point, you would just have your friend sort of place their knuckles um, on your, uh, just above your ankle. And you would just, all you would have to do, your only job would be to keep your heel on the floor while you bend your knee. Um, and that is really going to loosen up the, uh, the skin from the underlying structures. And like I said, um, open up the ankle to create a better range of motion.
2: Yeah, and that's one thing that I've changed my mind over probably a couple of years ago now is that I would watch someone squat, and I'm sure Phil's seen this a tons of times more than I have, and you watch, and their knee just doesn't want to go out over their toes. Yeah. And you're like, huh. And at first, I realized now, looking back, it's like, well, one, I should have given them permission. Hey, it's okay for your knee to go uh-huh. over your toe, because sometimes they think their knee's going to explode on them or something. Uh-huh. Right. Um and for years, I thought, oh, everything I read said, oh, it's the Achilles heel, their Achilles is tight, their calves are tight. And I did all this you know, calf dressing, all this crazy stuff. No change.
4: Mm-hmm. And what
2: I realized is exactly what you said over time is that it was more the front part of the ankle, which for alignment, skin, fascia, who knows, is a whole bunch of reasons, in essence, was more restricting. Yeah. Uh, and so I had them do the same sort of what I call knees to the wall drill. Um, just to try to get one that movement and then I also think of it as if I want to create a little bit more elastic tissue I want to take it and within its safe range of motion kind of move it back and forth right I want to mm-hmm. take the band and kind of stretch it a little bit you know as opposed to trying to increase some sort of flexibility in that area right have you seen that a lot in liftersville with just tight ankles
1: and oh flexion yeah all I the mean, time? yeah we deal with that a lot I got one girl right now that would we- she was a gymnast, and uh-huh. uh, she's got massive ankle mobility issues, but, I mean, we've addressed it a lot. so And it's, a lot of it is, like I've dealt with a lot of people that came from a martial arts background and that, oh. too. It's, a lot of it's neural, too. You know, oh, they've exactly. just spent so much time on their toes yeah. that they just don't know how to get back there. Yeah. And then I'm facing the wrong, the other issue, like <laughs> I just took up boxing several months back, and it's like the last 15 years of my life has been on my heels. And now my coach oh, is sure. like, get on your toes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, get on your toes. I'm like, I don't know how. <laughs> <man>. I'm flat footed <laughs> now. And so I'm just so used to being planted, and now I need to be on my toes. So yeah, I mean, like I said, a lot of this neural, but I mean, it's like you said, sometimes it's as easy as just giving them permission to, yeah, you know, the knee can come forward. It's not going to blow. It's it's made to do that. So um, yeah,
2: I always but, tell them to, you know, watch what position they get up off the toilet and watch where their knee happens when they walk up and down stairs.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: and if you've busted your ankle you know how hard it is to do those two things <laughs> so, cool well we'll wrap up here i just have two more questions for you um one of them what is probably your top sort of biggest myths regarding massage therapy that just drive you bonkers because there's it just seems to be there's more wacky stuff in massage than other areas although i think it's Definitely gotten better, or at least in my experience, over the last five, ten years. Yep. Um, but what are sort of, um, my buddy Lou Schuller calls them sort of the zombie myths, where you, you keep trying to kill them and they keep coming back all the time. Right. Uh, what would be some of those? And just so our, our people are educated on that.
3: Sure. So um, the tide is changing, I'm happy to say. But um, I guess the biggest one is that, you know, people walk in sort of expecting, like, a, you know, like they're coming to a spa. And I'm like, Nope, that's not what we do here. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just the, the impression that, um, you know, either, either it's, it's that massage is binary. It's either going to be like totally parasympathetic rest and digest kind of stuff, or it's going to be the worst pain you've ever had ever, you know what I mean? Um, and that there's no middle ground and, um, you know, I guess And this is, you know, I'm sort of beating a dead horse here, but coming back to the fact that um, your soft tissue treatment, your massage therapy treatment, whatever you want to call it, manual therapy treatment, does not have to be painful in order to produce effective results. Um, So, yeah, that's that's sort of the the one that I would underline, I guess, is that, you know, yes, what I am doing is working just because I'm not, you know… Uh, jamming my hand into treat your anterior longitudinal ligament on the front <laughs> part of your spine. Um, because my
2: elbow is not all the way in your so as, on the back of your yeah. pelvis, mm-hmm. which um, I've had done,
1: and that hurts like hell. <laughs> oddly enough, that's the same, probably the same one in the fitness industry and in strength training. Yeah, it's like you get done with somebody, and they're like, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not dead. Well, yeah, you're not dead. That's okay. Right. You know? <laughs>
3: you're like, give it two days, all right? Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me in two days. <laughs> so, uh. Cool.
1: And so
2: how can people find out more about you? And then if they're not in your your local area, how would you recommend that they find someone who's a good hands-on therapy person?
3: Um, So you can find me at either CrossFitLowell.com or TTR. Lowell.com, so tango tango romeo lowell.com um, stands for the treatment room. Um, I'm out of Lowell, Massachusetts, and um, if that's too far for you or if you're in the New England area, I do travel um, as well to other gyms and so forth. So, um, but if you're way out in uh, like California or something like that, for example, it all boils down to just doing your research um, and uh, you know, maybe not walking into the Outside that says massage parlor with a neon sign, and expecting to, to get some decent manual <laughs> therapy. Um, so, but uh, yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, like I said, you can you can check um, if a person is licensed on um, their respective state website, um, and then you know if you find somebody, just look into it. You know, and and all you have to do is talk to them, and yeah. I think that you get a really good sense of. Um, you know a person's uh, experience and knowledge, and also how much more they are looking to learn um, just by sitting down and having a conversation. And uh, one of my favorite things that that Tom Myers says is, um, "If you're still congratulating yourself on something you did 12 months ago, I feel sorry for you." So if somebody is, <laughs> if somebody is sort of like you know, riding the coattails is something that they learned, um, you know. Five, eight, ten, 12 years ago, and they're still trying mm-hmm. to employ that. Eh, maybe you want to look for somebody a little bit more progressive. Mm-hmm.
2: So, cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today, Gina. We greatly yeah, appreciate okay. it.
1: Thanks for joining. It's very us. useful. Thanks for having me. Of course, that was a good time. Everybody else, until next week. That's it. And Lonnie will be back, and uh, we'll get on again. Cool. Thanks. See you guys.